Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as a crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jarrah, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have the entire crew, Grace. Hey, everybody. Sue. Heidi-ho, neighborinos. And Andy. Hello. And we are going to be discussing an iconic Star Trek episode, The Inner Light. But before we get into that, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. Your support helps us keep our show up and running. We do things like uh, upgrade our equipment, uh, deal with our audio and uh, website hosting, pay uh, volunteers to help transcribe and write blog posts for our show, and other get out to conventions and otherwise promote the show and build our audience. So for a little a dollar a month, you can support us on Patreon. And we have various awesome rewards that you can get in return from thanks to social media to joining us for silly watch along commentaries. Visit www.patreon.com slash women at warp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Another housekeeping item is our book club. Sue, do you want to talk about our bo- a bit about our book club? Yeah, the next book we'll be reading is called Letters to Star Trek. It's compiled by uh, Gene Roddenberry's assistant Susan Sackett in, I believe, the late 70s. And there are several letters that were written to Star Trek, to Gene himself, and in some cases, Gene's responses to those as well. So when we do our book club episode, we'll each be picking a few instances specifically to talk about, but we will be talking about the entire book more specifically and generally over in our Goodreads group. So if you'd like to join us in that discussion, you can find the Women at Warp group on Goodreads. Awesome. Any other housekeeping before we move on to the main topic? We have a couple giveaways in the works, so we just Mm want to let you know that and keep an ear out for those in the new year. Get excited! Shiny. (laughs) Okay, so on to The Inner Light, the TNG episode, season 5, episode 25, original air date, June 1st, 1992. Let's all just take ourselves back in time to June 1st, 1992. I was seven. I was two. And we all, I'm sure, looked awesome. Of course. (laughs) Bull haircuts? What, What wasn't there to love? I had a hat that was a bucket hat. That I uh, used puffy paint on and then also uh, glued, like, plastic flowers to. And I thought it was the bangin'est hat. (laughs) And it was not. (laughs) I had a fanny pack that I glitter fabric painted flowers onto. Ah, Jara, we were always meant to be friends. Bangin' fanny pack. (laughs) I had a souvenir sweatshirt from the Nebraska Corn Palace. That was bedazzled and also had a little pocket full of unpopped kernels of corn in it for decoration. Wow. This was an actual article of clothing that I owned and wore as a child. (laughs) Also, the corn palace is a thing. I insisted on wearing a Marvin the Martian t-shirt to uh, picture day at school. Oh, that feels (laughs) on brand, though. You were sci-fi from the get-go. From the start. Yeah. I'm telling you. Nice. Okay, so... And for anyone who doesn't remember the plot of this episode, there's a probe floating in space, and it beams a signal that knocks Picard unconscious and makes him live the entire life of a dude from this uh, civilization called the Catanians. A.K.A. the planet of tie-dye and Tom's shoes. They've got a look. Yeah. And uh, so he lives this whole life, realizes that their planet is going to be destroyed by catastrophic environmental forces, and... 
at the end realizes that he was part of the group of people that constructed the probe that uh, was designed to share the memories of the planet's inhabitants as their civilization would not survive after having a family and all that. And then he wakes up and that's the end. So there's your super summary. And then he's got a little flute to remember it all by. Yeah. Which I guess is cheaper than therapy, but, you know. Probably not as effective. No. No. I would like to acknowledge right at the top that, in general, by a lot of people, this episode is considered one of Star Trek's best episodes. Mm -hmm. It won... The 1993 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. It's the third of only four Star Trek episodes to have done that to this point. But there are definitely some themes and some topics and some stuff that is also kind of problematic. Yeah. Last year at um, Star Trek Las Vegas, they did a special event just for the 25th anniversary of this episode, where they had the writer Morgan Gendel and the actress who played Aline plays the the wife of Patrick Stewart's character in the Catanian Society. And uh, I think Daniel Stewart was there too, uh, Patrick Stewart's son, who plays his son Bataille in his Catanian life. And, uh, and certainly the song that was composed by Jay Chataway for this, for the flute song is like very well known and brings many fans to tears to this day. If you go to a Star Trek convention, it's inescapable. (laughs) I actually ran into Morgan Gendel at Chicago Star Trek because he sells those flutes. Of course he does. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just like a penny whistle with a tassel on it, right? So it's a slightly fancy, it's a 25 cent piece whistle. You can also buy like signed scripts from him. He was very nice. I enjoyed speaking with him. But yeah, I met him. I met him. He had a table there. Nice. And the expanded orchestral suite, the six minute suite is beautiful. Mm hmm. I'll also say this is definitely the episode of Next Generation that the most when I bring up Star Trek to people, people who just casually were watching it in the 90s will be like, oh, yeah, I love that one where he goes and lives as someone else for a while. I thought that was really cool. That's the most common episode I've heard referenced about TNG from non-fans. So fans and non-fans alike love this one. Yeah. It also is uh, the third of four Star Trek episodes to win the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. The other ones being The Menagerie, parts one and two, with both parts combined. The City on the Edge of Forever and All Good Things. So definitely uh, those other episodes are pretty heavy hitters as well. And um, that's considered a pretty prominent recognition. Yeah, when I was first time trekking it, this was one of the ones that people were extremely excited for me to trek. And for the most part, even though I discourage this, hint, hint, to possible listeners that might also follow my Twitter feed, I don't like it when people tell me that an episode is either good or bad. Don't tell me about the episode at all, really. But people do, all the time. And they were just you're going to love this episode, was the number one thing I heard. People went hog wild on this one. Yeah, everyone was very excited for me to see it because they thought I would absolutely love it. That's one reason why I think First Time Trek resonated with so many people, because a lot of people uh, come into these discussions having, like, decades of fandom behind them. And, like, popular fan opinions that kind of coalesce. And 
I don't, or at least I didn't, have any of that. So I always had, like, this fresh perspective that was not colored by, like, general fan ideas that people had kind of rallied behind. So, for instance... I never found Wesley Crusher annoying. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I surprise people with whether or not I respond the way that they are expecting me to respond. But in addition to somebody's personal history with Star Trek and Star Trek fandom, there is the fact that so many fans have saw this episode when it aired and have history with, with this episode in particular. We were just saying earlier off mic that, you know, this is 92. And in 92, this like theater of the mind living another person's life concept was still a relatively new one in sci-fi TV. Not entirely new, but it certainly was not the trope that it is now. So it was this whole concept and this arc of this episode was kind of mind-blowing for a lot of people watching it. Whereas now that is not the most impressive thing about the episode anymore. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it It also led to at least two more Star Trek episodes that were along similar lines, one being uh, the Deep Space Nine episode Hard Time and one the Voyager episode Memorial, mm-hmm. both of which are pretty dark and- Oh, they're hella dark. More more directly violent than this. Yeah. Um, but um, it showed that this was uh, had a profound impact on, on people. You gotta wonder, though, if those ep- uh, two episodes were response to- how you can look at this episode in kind of a problematic light, though. I I do think that, like, there have been more than one person who's treated me and told me that, like, for them, in 1992, it was, like, cinematic. Mm -hmm. It was like a movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think sometimes we forget, like, the difference in quality of TV in 92 to now. Like, now we have all these prestige dramas that have, like, that cinematic quality to them, and it was still a new thing. TV was still a young medium by any art-telling perspective. So I think that it's hard to separate how you f- how you feel when you first see an episode and the context that you see an episode in. It's hard to kind of step away from that. And you shouldn't have to, really. Like, that's all a part of the experience of art. You're bringing your own perspective to it and your own feelings and understanding of the world to it that's why art is so subjective like one person will watch this episode and be moved to absolute tears and there are other people such as myself that didn't enjoy it as much and I think that's really kind of beautiful it's like it's it's different for every person and that's part of why art is so amazing and so interesting to dissect and I think there are also people who do both Mm -hmm. you know you can be very moved by a piece of art and still have criticisms or things to talk about or things that you didn't like about it. Absolutely. I like to think that that's what we do here. Mm-hmm. At least part of the goal, yeah. Yeah. Going back to you know how this was kind of a, a big deal for science fiction at the time, um, Morgan Gendel in an, an article at io9 talks about how he sort of feels like the same struggle that Picard as Cayman does, where he was a freelance writer trying to get the show to accept this the script that was really weird for them that like this is unlike a lot of the Star Trek that had happened to date very focused on one character although originally he had actually proposed that Riker and Roe be taken into the universe as well um which we can speculate on how that would have gone <laughs> and uh and that he sort of he likens it to Cayman having to get his people to accept the reality that they're they're 
uh, climate is changing and their civilization is going to be destroyed. So yeah, it was a bit of an interesting time in the universe of television. What's so interesting is that within the first, I don't know, five minutes of the episode, we have Bataille planting this tree and this tree will thrive in defiance of all of the climate science that they have. And that just... That's some tree. I hadn't watched this episode in a while, and that just really resonated with me. Like, here are our government leaders, like, actively fighting against climate science. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we had a comment from Rosemary saying, the planet roasted and there was nothing they could do to stop it. We have some limited influence on how ours warms up if we all pulled together and we're not. It hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I... I I saw this episode when climate change was much more, I guess, established. And so it's kind of very impressive to me that this is a story at all in 1992. And it really holds up like this part of the story really holds up. Like the idea of leaders that just don't want to face the problems that they are experiencing and just like a lack of vision for how to fix those problems Mm -hmm. and kind of the sadness of what do you do when you're raising children and you don't know if there's going to be a planet for them to live on. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of that is super resonant right now. Well, and nobody takes action until it's too late to save the planet and they just have to figure out how they're going to be remembered. I think that's the saddest part to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it makes y'all feel better, Earth already sent a whole load of crap into space. (laughs) So, like, you know, when our planet is a desolate wasteland, there are, like, really terrible pop songs and also Elon Musk's car just, like, (laughs) floating out there. And they'll know humans were here. (laughs) Oh, now I'm bummed out. (laughs) Man, I'm trying to lighten the mood, Grace. There's some good stuff. There's good stuff out there, too. Just think about what they put out on the Voyager probe. That And, like, just forget on the other stuff. Right. <laughs> well, we know what happens when we find that again. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> We've taken this even darker than the episode. <laughs> but, so, before I think we get into... Uh, I don't want to say the heavier stuff. There's all, It's all kind of heavy stuff. But one of the complaints I see a lot about this episode is not really about the episode itself, but about the fact that, you know, next week we're back to normal, which is the issue in general with, you know, early to mid to even kind of late 90s television, that it's all syndicated. And the only real follow-up they had was when you see the flute again in lessons, and you can argue in generations. But there's a quote from Ron Moore from an AOL chat in 1997, you guys. Whoa. <laughs> Technology. <Wow>. Top-notch source. <laughs> well, no, th- it was like an Ask Me Anything, like a Reddit AMA, but it happened on AOL. That's amazing. I think that's awesome. Um, and he wrote, We never intended the show to completely upend his character and force a radical change in the series. So we contented ourselves with a single follow-up in Lessons. Yeah. That seems not... Like something you should be contented with, but maybe that is my own personal feeling about Nella Darren. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's like, I mean, it was the nature of TV. And in sure. some ways, it's still the nature of TV for a lot of shows in which 
at the end of the episode, you have to go back to the status quo because it's very, very risky to upend a character in that way or even, like, a sh- like changing settings. is It's all very risky. Like, the audience might not like it. The audience might not like the change. And, you know, I get it. Do I wish that some of the trauma that's explored in the show was explored more deeply? Absolutely. I personally think Picard would be extremely affected by this and extremely affected by, say, the Borg and extremely affected by his torture. Mm -hmm. You know, like there are many examples, even if you're just looking at Picard, of deep trauma that's not ever really explored. But I mean, it's kind of it's kind of the limitations of this kind of TV storytelling. Yeah, for sure. Morgan Gendel had proposed a sequel called The Outer Light, where they encounter Catan survivors, including Aline. That never got made, but could have been interesting. But how if she died a thousand years ago? I don't know. (laughs) Sci-fi, Sue. Science. (laughs) I don't know. They got rescued. They got put in stasis. They got maybe I don't know. Clones. (laughs) Yeah. Time travel. Or maybe he proposed it at the very beginning, like two stories together or something. Maybe. He was trying to discreetly slip in there a pilot for a series all about these people who whose planet were destroyed, but they live in the future now and they get up to all kinds of wacky shenanigans. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) You know, it's kind of what Gene Roddenberry did when he did the Ninja Cat episode. Exactly. The backdoor pilot. He was trying to make sure that he had a, a, a job. Yeah. If Star Trek didn't pan out. <laughs> it's called job security. And it is what it is. So we have a bunch of themes that uh, we can discuss. Um, there's some sort of general ones that we identified, as well as there were five themes or questions that Morgan Gendel has identified. I don't know that we need to go through all five of them. We've already kind of covered off the theater of the mind. Um, but one that I thought was interesting was the what he calls the healing brush tool, which is the question, did the recreation show the Catanians more kindly than reality? Like, if you were creating a museum to show how your society lived, would you make it better than than reality? And he said he thinks yes. But thoughts on that? Um, I don't think anybody can ever see themselves or their society dispassionately and without bias. So I would agree with him. And I think everyone is embarrassed of aspects of their life, including their society. Like, if I had to go before, say, Q in some sort of galactic trial (laughs) and had to defend humanity, I would have a lot of things to say in our defense, but also, like, I would have a lot of things to say about how crap we are. And even even then, I don't think I could honestly portray us as a species because I am part of it. I have a lot of questions about the society and its level of technology. Mm -hmm. Because we see Cayman building his own telescope, but we also see touch-activated sliding doors. The implication is that they have created a space program in order to launch this probe and have no uh, manned spaceflight, but they have the ability to create this program that jumps into Picard's brain on the Enterprise and puts him into this world in his own mind. 
Their planet has a very specialized educational system. Right. It all, it all doesn't, like, jive really yeah. well to me. But also, how did they do it? Did somebody did, – did Cayman sit down and tell his life story to somebody who typed it up? Or were they able to, like, scan his memory engrams and put that in the program? See, that would have been an episode unto itself. This old man just describing all of his benign life stories and them trying to work out workable story from it. But I think that how they did it might help to answer this question. You know, if somebody actively programmed this from stories or experiences, it's probably in a biased light. If it's simply somehow this man's memories... Maybe it's not, or it, in the very least, it's would be the exact way he experienced them. Yet there has to be some kind of programming because we see that Picard, as came in, appears to have free will. Like he doesn't, he's not being forced to take any kind of action. We see when he decides that he's ready to have children. So there needs to be something in it that allows for deviation from the actual life story of this person. Did Cayman even really exist? Or is this a fancy brain holodeck program? I need to stop riffing on this now. (laughs) I don't know. It'd be really cool if it turned out he was like an amalgamation of various figures in their society or just the people who were working on the project. See, to me, it feels very much like a RPG. (laughs) Hmm. No, but seriously, like a virtual reality RPG. No, I see it. Where they put him in this place and they gave him these non-playable characters and he can shape how he responds to them and they will respond back. Mm -hmm. But like they still have like set a blueprint for his life that he's supposed to follow. Like when, when you're talking video game development, there's a lot of different ways that they push you towards choices. And mm-hmm. even though you're like, technically, you go down that hallway and not that hallway, there's a lot of design ways that they make you go down a certain hallway, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Right. And when you're saying he has free will, I feel like it's Truman Show style free will. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Where it's like, they he they, they give him this like, super empathetic, nice, sweet wife that he doesn't want to make sad. And then it makes it clear that the only thing that she really wants is kids. And then he feels guilty and, like, he has to do that. Like, I feel like, yes, there's an illusion of free will, but I don't know. I don't know. Can you have free will in a situation like that, in a simulation like that, where they're actively trying to teach you a lesson? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah, and... One of our commenters also called into question the idea that he even maybe lived a full lifetime, saying that uh, there's little to suggest that Picard gets to keep all those memories or even that a lifetime of them truly existed. And he sort of speculates that uh, this listener speculates that it may be sort of like the fragmented elements of a dream where you fully, albeit briefly, believe you've lived a very different life and that but that it fades quickly once you wake up so that was just another interpretation of it like you know how in the truman show when he starts maybe people haven't seen the truman show which is about jim carrey and like a bubble and they're all watching him and they want to make sure he doesn't leave because if he leaves he'll realize he lives in like a dome so when he decides he wants to like take a trip 
they put together a travel agency for him, and he goes to it, and on the wall, there's a poster of a plane getting hit by lightning and, like, crashing into the sea, and it says, it could happen to you on it. And, like, everything is designed to make him not want to do that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the point of that movie is that, like, his will is stronger, right? Mm -hmm. But that's what I mean when I say, like, is his free will, is it real? I don't know. I also like the idea of they made it so that the further away from this memory of the second life he's lived, he gets, the less he can actually remember specifically so that he can't figure out why there are quite so many plot holes there. <laughs> Just like, hang on, you you developed brain-preserving technology, but, but you couldn't get solar an- energy to take off? What? They're like, no, 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 just, just leave with the happy, happy memory that we existed, and we were a very good and very clean people. I mean, this is kind of getting into the reasons why I don't actually like this episode, in that... I feel like it's extremely manipulative, not just of Picard, but of us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all art is manipulative. Like, that's the point of it, to manipulate your emotions, to feel a certain thing. But for me, it just seems so horrifying. The idea of somebody coming into my brain without permission, without consent, and like rearranging my brain to show me a fake life that is designed to teach me something that they want me to know that to me is, is like, is like invasion of the body snatchers type horror. Yeah. He did not agree to spend these 25 minutes in this RPG. Yeah. Not only that, like it, it's not, it's not just, it's just like such a violation of your mind. I can't. Yeah. It's so creepy to me. And when it's supposed to be like touching and melancholy and sad and sweet and what you're actually feeling is like, ew, no, it, it kind of makes, it makes it harder for me to like connect with the, the message of the episode. Uh, so that's why I think I had such a different reaction to it than most people. Cause I was the whole time I was like, no, leave him alone. Don't hurt him. He's been through so much. Don't force him to feel things. <laughs> How dare you? But, I mean, think about how traumatized he was after the Borg. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is a speci- makes it especially messed up. And a huge reason why he was traumatized with the Borg is because they invaded his mind. They turned him into someone he wasn't. And this does that in a totally different way and with totally different intentions that are supposedly benign. But, like, it's functionally the same thing and it really weirds me out. And there's no way that anyone who came across this probe, if it weren't Picard, hypothetically, that wouldn't have a traumatic experience in there. Eventually, you're going to have relationships, whether you choose to continue with the person you're told is your partner or not, whether you have children or not. You're going to get to the end of it and find out that everyone you've been interacting with for as long as you thought you were in there died a thousand years ago. That's that's still going to be traumatic, and that's still going to be something that you're going to have to deal with. So it's also forcing eventual trauma onto someone. Yeah, yeah and you definitely were not alone in uh, seeing that as super problematic, Andy. Benjamin said, compared the two, the Borg experience uh, with this, and said, I know he keeps a- playing the flute and actively fights the Borg memories, 
But I bet he has two sessions with Troy every week to keep working through what thoughts are actually his after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to have some definite trust issues coming along. There's actually, I don't remember the name of it, but there is some really great fan fiction that I remember that had Picard dealing with this episode in particular and saying things like, I don't know if these feelings are mine or not. I would love to read that. I I wish I remembered what it was. I'm sure I read it like 20 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I just, it it kind of boggles my mind because, okay, so I, I compared this episode a little bit to a virtual reality RPG. So I love RPGs. I play RPGs all the time. Like, after Dragon Age 2, when one of my companions died, I I was, like, crushed. I sat on my couch and cried for a solid four hours. Like, and that was for an experience not only that I consented to, but, like, paid good money for. And knew wasn't real. Exactly. And I still, like, I, I, I maybe I'm, I'm too sensitive. Say whatever you want. But it really messed me up. Like, it's one reason why it's my favorite game of all time now, because... You know, having an emotional experience that intense is very rare. Mm -hmm. But I was devastated. And then, like, to think of it and extrapolate that to you, I didn't know it wasn't real. I actually loved my kids and my grandkid and my wife. And now suddenly they're all all dead, but also they're not real. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would mess me up. (laughs) Well, I mean, and they're, along those lines, they're gaslighting him from the moment he shows up. Absolutely. And that's yeah. the other thing I was wondering when I was rewatching it today was when she's like trying to explain to him that he's not Picard. Does she know at that time or, you know, how real are these people? Are they, but like if she knows and is actively like gaslighting him into believing he's not real, that's even more messed up. But I don't know. Like, I don't know if she's even a real person or if it's just a program. I, I don't I don't know the answers to any of these questions. But, like, the, the result is very emotionally manipulative, in my opinion, of course. I realize it would take the drama of what's happening on the Enterprise D away entirely. But, like, how difficult would it be for the society to have put in, a, like, hey, we would like to show you how we lived because our society died a long time ago. Would you like to see it? Yeah, there's definitely more sensitive ways to do it. Click yes or no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the problem is, is like, and I see why they don't do that, is because it's a huge problem from a storytelling perspective. Absolutely. Or like a huge part of the tension of this episode comes from, is Picard really in danger? Like... What's happening? What's happening is like a full third of the beginning of this episode. And if you know what's happening, like a lot of the tension draws out. So you'd have to find a different way to insert that tension into the story. But like, I agree. Like, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to be like, here's an archaeological artifact of our people. Would you like to see how we lived and died? I wonder if there would have been a way to flip it, like to start... Instead of starting on the Enterprise, start in, like, the Catanian simulation with Picard. So you don't know what happened up in, up until that point until, like, the end of the episode. Mm. Yeah, see, and I think that that would have worked better. Because the point is to keep tension for the audience, not for Picard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, then we would have avoided a scene that both Carrie and Lynn Ann raised, which is Riker being rude to Dr. Crusher. Riker! I mean, I get it. He's worried. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I, I kind of appreciate the way he puts it. And he says, I'm not going to let them keep drilling into him is the way that, yeah. that he puts it. And that's kind of how I feel about it. So like, I totally get where he's coming from and that like, he sees it as an attack. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. But then Crusher's analogy is also a good one, because if you pull a knife out of somebody who's been stabbed and you don't have a way to stop that bleeding, like, you can cut more than, you know, like, there, there's a reason yeah. why if you are impaled in any way, you should not pull out the knife. But I just think they're trying to make it more intense, and it just comes off as condescending. Yeah. There is the dramatic tension there, too, though, for Picard, for Cayman of whether or not in the very beginning he will accept this as his life or not. Mm -hmm. Which would also be gone if it turned out to be a consented to experience. Yeah. I would feel better about it if it weren't consensual. But the episode makes it clear, clearer that it's not okay that they did this. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's this, it, it, for me, it's the, similar to the child in which... One of the reasons why I find the child so disturbing is because everyone's acting like this violation of Troy is great. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not so much what happened. It's more about how they frame what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Because you're right. We absolutely do get Riker saying, I can't believe they're doing this. They're attacking him. And then once mm -hmm. they know what it up was, everybody's like, oh, well, okay, then. It yeah. wasn't trying to hurt you. So it's fine. Sheesh. Yeah. Intent doesn't matter, y'all. Just because you didn't Lord. intend to hurt somebody doesn't mean you didn't hurt somebody. Yeah. But also, I think you could argue in this case, they should have reasonably known. Like, they clearly had notions of, like, love and family and that they would have been upset if their whole family died, which is why they were trying so hard to preserve their civilization in some way. So they should be able to know that going through that would be a lot to ask of someone. I also find it interesting that it's like a one and done. Mm -hmm. I feel like it would be more effective if it was like an artifact that could like continue. Like mm -hmm. anybody could have this experience, but maybe they didn't have the technology. No, they just, they somehow had the technology to make their probe zero in on the most high ranking person that would be on any given ship. The person with the most influence. Yeah, that's the other thing. Why did it choose Picard? Yeah. The probe was like, that dude loves archaeology. <laughs> Him. You know who looks like they'd look good with a flute? This guy. <laughs> Which one's the star of the show? That one. <laughs> Which one's going to act our way to an Emmy? This guy. <laughs> Sue, so you brought up earlier that they are wearing like the pastels and mm -hmm. toms or whatever. Picard looks hella good in them. <laughs> so several people have pointed out that aging Picard on this planet is looks way like less good than actual Patrick Stewart aging. Yes. Well, that's because Patrick Stewart is like immortal. I love how we have that same thing with aged uh, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> but he does like the, the that first outfit they put him in, which is like the sleeveless green number with the belt. Mm -hmm. And then like the very deep cut V so we can see his chest hair. <laughs> yeah, that rings the bell. I mean, but the people on this planet, when they choose a color and pattern, they stick to it. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite things about fashion in Star Trek. Just everyone on the entire planet has a very similar aesthetic. He wore that mottled green 
Leia on Endor poncho colored <laughs> tunic for like 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> he was committed to the look. He knew what worked for him. And that was what he was going with. The aesthetics of their apartment also did not change at all. (laughs) This is not a woman who, like, is looking for the newest decorating magazines. No refreshing of their dining room space, which is apparently just a pot. No weird (laughs) friends redecoration choices. Because let's be real, they made them. Oh, they should have painted it purple. Everything was super, like, 90s motel. (laughs) Maybe maybe that was it. They were Airbnb-ing their house for the entire time they lived there. (laughs) I just know that I'm now going to have to glue some giant fake crab claws onto my crock pot. (laughs) Because what was that? (laughs) I just love that she never got rid of it. It was a look. (laughs) 50 years later, that crock pot was sitting there pristine. (laughs) Well, everyone's got something that grandma owned that they just can't get rid of. Yeah, but like I have a um, tea kettle from my grandma and I love it, but it is not pristine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just I just found it very, very endearing throughout the whole episode. See, we found the light stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we got there eventually. A couple other themes that came up. One that I thought was interesting because it came up in uh, listener comments too is Morgan Gendel raised the idea of the desire of the civilization to survive even just in others' memory. And there was a scene that was filmed but cut in which Data has deciphered the inscription on the outside of the probe, which reads, inside each of us lives an entire civilization, which was inspired by a Talmudic saying to the effect that killing a single person and therefore their descendants was like murdering an entire people. Gosh. And says that, you know, the Catan people know they are about to die and desperately want to live on by finding someone special to walk in their shoes and tell their story. I totally did that, not know that, but this episode does always make me think of a Jewish thing of using the fra- uh, word hineni, meaning here I am, as a phrase of worship in the sense of saying the fact that I am here and the fact that I feel is in and of itself an act of worship, and that alone is a purpose for being. The, the act of existing is important in and of itself, and being acknowledged in that way is extra important. And I think it's really cool that that could have been further in there, and it wasn't. Well, sad that it wasn't, but cool that it was there to a degree. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely in the episode in the sense that so much time is spent on thinking about children mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. children and I mean, that's one of the ways that we perpetuate ourselves. Even that tree, you know, like this idea of a monument to their hope or whatever. Well, we also mm-hmm. only see them at home. You know, they're dealing with issues in their community. They're dealing with issues in their family. But we see them at home and working at home and working with each other. We never see that we hear about school, but we don't see it. We don't. Apparently, nobody has a job they have to go to. (laughs) Sets are expensive, okay? Which sounds great. But I mean, they don't even reference it. You know, it's not like, well, you just got home from work and now you're going out to your telescope, which you'd kind of expect from a lot of 90s TV. You and your telescope. The focus of what we were shown on Catan really was the family relationships and how the family is dealing with the issues in the community. 
Mm-hmm. It's a very personal story. Mm-hmm. It's extrapolating the lives of an entire civilization through one family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had a listener, Stacy, who wrote, After watching my own mother fight and lose her battle with cancer, I've even come to appreciate the nobility in fighting a cause against insurmountable odds knowing you will lose. That the Resicans... Wait, were their names the Resicans? They call it the Resican Flute. Yeah. But I don't know why. But I think they're the Catanians. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah, the planet is definitely Catan. Okay. But anyway, that they believe passing on the personal details and experiences of one person was enough. And then she raises the same saying from the Talmud that, in her words, to save one life is as if you have saved the entire world. This episode may not be the happiest, but I think it is the most deeply touching and uplifting of the entire series. So that's just, you know, the flip side and the way that that personal story is very personal to a lot of fans too. Yeah, I mean, the number one thing I hear from fans about this episode is about how touching it is and how much it makes them cry, which makes sense because it's it's a very resonant theme, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think. And it's a very well done episode and Patrick Stewart is obviously phenomenal as he always is. And like, I have huge problems with this episode, but even at like that moment where he, his wife dies and like the grief he has for her. I mean, mm-hmm. when Patrick Stewart is sad, I am also sad. Yes. <laughs> you know, that is the gift of a great actor. So I found myself cheering up at that point because like the, the absolute grief he portrays at that moment. And then also the other, the other part that's really emotionally intense, I guess you could call it is the moment he realizes everything that has happened. And he says, Oh, it's me. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. super powerful. Mm-hmm. And the part when everyone he loves who's died comes back and you mean the force ghosts? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I've seen this episode probably a million times, but that's the one that always get part that always gets to me. Yeah. It's very sweet. It's like, it starts with, you know, his friend that he hasn't seen in so long. And then just like all of these people who love him and who he loves and yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, this this episode is has a lot of issues with it, but it is very beautiful. So uh, how do you think this could have worked, if at all, if Riker and Roe had been in it, too? That's so weird. How? It is super weird. Yeah. I can't see that working. First of all, Roe would probably shoot someone. Yeah, I can only imagine the entire tone changing. Yeah. But when I think about it, it makes me think about the next phase. Right? Because I feel like it would be sort of like that, where it would end up being the three of them there in this situation that they have to figure it out. And it becomes mm-hmm. a puzzle rather than the the family, the personal story that we get. I think if, if it was just Roe, it could have been done sort of like preemptive strike or some of the episodes with Kira where she bonds with like another character who she starts out antagonistic about Mm -hmm. but then like learns more about herself but still wouldn't have probably held your attention as much I just feel like Riker and Ro are much more aggressive yeah and much more likely to not like settle in the way that Picard did Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there would have been like secret meetings late at night about we need to figure out what's really going on here. There's a conspiracy. Like, I don't think they Mm -hmm. would have. I know it, it seems to have taken up five years. But Picard, like, 
sort of settles in very early on and he's like, all right, I'm going to play along with this. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I don't think Roe or Riker could have done that that easily and remained in character. Not only that, but like if you had more than one of them, then they have people to reinforce that, no, they don't belong here. Whereas right. when it's just Picard in isolation, he's being gaslit from every direction. He has to have moments where he's like, this uh, this life I had was made up. And the only hint he has is that pendant. Yeah. And his own, like, not inconsiderable force of will. But, like, right. every any person, no matter how strong-willed, is going to start to doubt themselves very quickly. But if you have someone that you kn- from your life right there next to you, also in the same situation, then you know. Like, there's there's another point of view outside of your own that would make you continue to, like, try and figure out the mystery. Which, by the way, is something I really love about Star Trek in general, is this idea where somebody will be like, these shenanigans are happening to me. And everybody goes, oh, okay. <laughs> and they start figuring it out. Uh, okay, we're just going to go with it. Like, that sounds that sounds super weird. Let's figure out why that happened. It's very, very rare that they're like, no, I think you're just crazy. Yeah. Right? It's almost always like they are listen. Yeah. Something, some uh, general Star Trek love there. I love <laughs> yeah. that about Star Trek. So... Do you think that had Picard been given the opportunity to consent that he would have done it? Hell yeah! (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things that makes me so mad about it, is if you had told Picard, hey, we've got this archaeological artifact that will allow you to personally see and understand a civilization from a thousand years ago, would you like to do it? He would have been the first person to say yes. He would have been like, oh, hell yeah! That is like that is like his idea of shore leave. Mm-hmm. You know? That'd be more relaxing for him than shore leave. That's one of the reasons why it makes me so mad. Like if you had just asked, he would have been more than happy to do that for you. Yeah. Maybe that's why I picked him. I don't know. <laughs> no, I agree. I I was just interested because um one of our listeners, Paul, sort of can uh, said that this was as close to being a trill as a human could get. And I, I think I read it a couple places referred to as kind of a romantic idea to like live someone else's life. So is this something that that we would all think is a pretty cool idea? I would do it. But I, I mean, we've talked about how much I love RPGs. So, but yeah. I just keep thinking of the, this is, Lord, forgive me for this. It always makes me think of the Rick and Morty thing where they've got a video game that's just you living as another guy. And then when you're done, you like meet up with your friends and be like, oh, what did you choose to do? Oh, I chose to go back to work after I beat cancer and stuff like that. Isn't that just The Sims? Yes. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> I mean, and I think it's important that it was created by the subjects, right? Yeah. So it's not like a tourism thing. Emotional tourism. That does sound like something that would pop up. Yeah. Or like, well, or like cultural tourism, I guess, that like is like, oh, let's, you know, how about we go see how awful it is to be like someone who's in this like really impoverished country and that you would like live through something that was created by like a dominant culture mm-hmm. that would be weird mm-hmm. and possibly like would just make you let you feel better about yourself i'm just thinking of volunteerism yeah yeah or like you know um put your like there are all these um experiences that people can have and i think people do it with really good intentions mm-hmm. but like live for a week on the amount of money you get on welfare 
or like sleep on the streets for a night. Can I tell you one that I find really offensive? Fat suits. Oh, Oh, yeah. Every couple of years. I think that is much less well intentioned. <laughs> like some some extremely gorgeous skinny woman putting on a fat suit and being like, "People are mean to me." Yeah, people don't stop to open doors for me anymore. I could have told you that. You could have just listened to us. Like that really bothers me. It it turns yeah. personal experiences into like zoo exhibits. Well, yeah, and then and the people who create the like ability for you to have those experiences are not the people that are in the marginalized cultures and or marginalized groups and it's not those people's stories who get told it's the story of the privileged person that like went and experienced it on their own terms for like a night Mm -hmm. i am absolutely thinking of nickel and dimed by barbara ironreich right now yeah and her just being shocked that like wait what Jobs are hard. You, there are people who have to suffer indignities every day and then have to go back to keep dealing with it. This is weird. <laughs> Again, well-intentioned and a, a good piece of work, but very much coming from a privileged, privileged perspective. Well, there's, there's the story that's been making the rounds a lot lately of I signed my emails with my female co-worker's name oh, for yeah. a month. Yeah. I'm like, or you could have just listened. Yeah. You're absolutely yeah. right. You could have just listened. Yeah. So that's the thing is like I think the idea if if there was like if I could live someone else's life or like live in another culture that like knowing that that was something that they wanted and thought was valuable and that they had crafted that, then I think that would be, yeah, like a really neat special experience. That said, I would only do it if counseling was free. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the ability to leave. Yeah. Yes. Even Westworld probably had an emergency exit. Yeah. Overall, this episode is really, really, really well done. And there is a lot of really great reasons why people love this episode. And I think it's just one of those really iconic ones that will always hold a special place in people's heart. Awesome. Well, shall we wrap up then? Any final thoughts? Even with its problems, I give it eight piles of shoes out of eight pi- out of ten piles of shoes. <laughs> I really was not sure you were going to say shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I, I don't even know that I can rate this because I, I feel like the, the problematic thing is such a problem, but if they had only framed it differently, it would be a masterpiece. And so much of it is really good that I, I kind of don't want to give it a rating, but I guess I will. I'm going to give it 7.5 out of 10 penny whistles with tassels glued on them. <laughs> Yay! Well, I mean, up until a few years ago, I kind of only had that fanish opinion about this episode. The, the It's a masterpiece. It Because to be truthful, as much as I remember loving it for a long time. It wasn't one that I watched very often. And then we did, Andy and I, before we started this show, did an episode of Grace's show. Yep. <laughs> in which uh, her co-host Oren asked us to pick our favorite episode from each season. And as I went through and, and was choosing, and I got to season five, I was like, oh, well, of course, The Inner Light. And as we were recording, it was Andy who said, wait, what? <laughs> 
I wasn't surprised, though. I mean, it's it's definitely one of those episodes. Yeah, but I mean, you. I was like, what? You have a problem with the inner light? Again, not having watched it in a long time, not remembering a lot of the specifics. And you pointed them all out. And I was like, oh, my gosh, my world has changed. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But no, watching it now and since, I'm like, yeah, but but not that. But how about this one? So I don't know. My my can my rating be an imaginary number? (laughs) Seven I pi over six. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I have lots of unpopular track opinions. Like there are episodes that people think are bad that are like my favorites. So like the storyteller from DS9, which is the one where O'Brien becomes like a like a weather god. <laughs> he becomes equal parts prophet slash weatherman. It's so good. It's one of my favorite episodes. I mean, it's not good, but it's so fun to watch. So like I I've I've gotten to the point where I'm just like, all right, I'm ready. Here's my opinion. Boomy. But I love that I can have the perspective of I'm going to remember what it was like to watch this episode for the first time 20 some odd years ago. And I, knowing what the intent was, can sit down and enjoy it for that. But I can also pick apart the themes like we did today and talk about the stuff that makes you think. And for that, I give Star Trek a 10 out of 10. There you go. Yeah. For me, I'll give it two out of five homemade telescopes. Because <laughs> nice. I think it's an in- incredibly well done episode in every possible metric. It's just the part of my brain that is horrified can't turn off. And so then the whole thing takes on this really uh, dark tinge that I can't quite get over. But it's a well done episode. So, yeah. All right. Well, then, uh, to wrap up, Andy, where can people find you elsewhere on the internet? You can yell at me on Twitter and I'll <laughs> mute you <laughs> at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my way through the first time of Star Trek. Where are you these days? Um, I am on a Voyager episode. I just watched the Deep Space Nine episode, um, uh, the Bashir one, where he becomes a spy. Arman Bashir, is that right? Yeah. Which was great. The Bond episode, <laughs> yeah. And Grace, where can people find you elsewhere? You can find me on Twitter at BonecrusherJank and out back trying to figure out how to make my own telescope. No one told me it was hard. <laughs> and Sue, what about you? You can find me on the tweets at Speltor, that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R, or working on my TIE fighter armor flight suit. <laughs> and I'm Jara, and you can find me at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin on Twitter. I'm also at TrekkieFeminist.com. And if you'd like to contact our show, we have many ways to do that. We are on the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. We have a website, womenatwarp.com. All those other things, you can find us at Women at Warp. Crew at womenatwarp.com is our email. And you can also uh, help uh, support our show And let us know what you think by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, you can visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 